as a kid, I can remember going to your rodeos, and you you were pretty mean on young kids that tried to do a bit of steer riding. The electric prodder that they don't use now seemed to hit kids a little bit more than the beast. Well, it was for to get the kids on because they were always hanging back a bit. We never hit the cattle with them. It was only for the kids to tickle them up a little bit and make them get on. Great times out there. The the galas out there that they run for the two days and they go into the evenings, the whole community would get there and run them. But I can remember the chap running with the bow and arrow. Do you want to tell me a bit about him? Yes, he was a New Zealand champion with the bow and arrow. They lived up Brunnings Road there. He was one of the Brunning brothers. There was a family. His father had a farm up Brunnings Road. And there was the three boys. There was Harry, Jack, who was the one not used the bow and arrows. And he was very, very good. And he taught a lot of young folks around about too. And there was also Charlie. Charlie and Jack were on the farm. Yeah, I can remember being at the gala and he shot balloons at a fair distance. And this bow and arrow doesn't resemble anything like they buy today. It's just like you could make out a superjack. It was just straight, straight bow and over a fair distance. Didn't have a lot closed in. I helped run a gala with the same thing, using bow and arrows and balloons for, and no prize if you had 10 arrows. But we did find when we stacked the hay bales and we were aiming towards Marine Parade, if the arrows missed the target, missed the hay bales, they went into the tent or they went across the road. But it was, we didn't hit anybody, so it was what happened. The other thing is about the big galas you run, you built all the, your stalls. You went and got timber. You tell us about that. Yeah, well, your stalls and that were made with uh, dunnage that you'd get from the mill. It'd be the slabs that you would get, and they'd all be built up, and then you would get the, um, the tarpaulins from the railway or one of the transport companies and cover them with those and make the stalls up. As you say, they were a two-day event, but it'd take a couple of days to get it all ready. But that was part of the fun of it, and they were, they were really good. And then we raised a lot of money to get that hall built, we used to say they were building, they were trying to get a hall in town here at the same time. As I said, we'd have, they'd have been better to have given us the money that they'd raised in town because we had our hall built before they had the one in town. Yeah, I have the books here that go back to the very start of the domain board and there's a letter there where they applied for the land off lands and survey to actually build the hall, the original letters still in the 50 years of the domain board books. An old fella, Herrick, a fellow with one leg, he used to tell the kids that he'd had it bitten by a shark. He had applied for the land. Yes, and across from the hall there, of course, you had the, uh, one of the best gardeners in New Zealand, old AP Hearing. He had a massive garden, approximately about a quarter of an acre of it. He lived on Marine Parade, and his section went right back to what is Cook Street there now, and his back section was all in garden. In those days, it was very, very competitive. The gardening sessions at the uh, at the show, the vegetable section between the Herrings and the Ferguson brothers, there was quite a bit of competition, and they were all out to win it. I remember one time when old AP, he was a very good vegetable grower and won a lot of the cups. I remember one time uh, as a young one, I put entries into the show. And but we didn't. I'd put some entries in for some carrots, 
But our carrots weren't very good, so I thought, oh, well, I'll go down and see Mr Hearing, see whether he's got any spare ones. So I went down and seen AP, as we called him, and he had all these vegetables strewn out on the ground where he'd picked them and he'd taken all the ones that he wanted, you know, for the show. And I said to him what I wanted them for. He said, help yourself, lad. He said, help yourself. So down I went. I picked out my six carrots, put them in the show, and I beat him with his own carrots. <laughs> he was my next-door neighbour. When I first moved to Carter's Beach about 50 years ago, AP was my next-door neighbour. And you're right, like the fruit trees and all that, they pulled all those out when they built that new house. But uh, he will also come up in a story I'll tell later on out of one of the survey books I got in 1913. He used to help a chap, Shattuck, do surveying on the Nine Mile and all round the place. It, it covers a lot of the Buller district. But he went, or the surveyor, now I can't relate to which Shattuck it is. It's Cam Shattuck's grandfather. The people that know Cam Shattuck, his grandfather was a surveyor. And he went down to the Totra to stay the evening and he asked if he could stay there, and this Mr Herring says yes, he could. And uh, he went out and done his surveying and whatever he had to do, and AP used to work for him for time to time. After he left, the entry in his journal or in his diary says, the man requires a wife or a housekeeper as the beds proved to be full of fleas. And that was his final entry for that day. Yeah, well, when the hall was built, uh, it's, if you have a look at it, and the way it is built, it's got um, big trusses in there, and they're laminated trusses. It was one of the first buildings in the South Island to ever have that type of framing in it when it was built. It was well ahead of its time from normal construction means. So it has got a little bit of um, history there as well, the hall has, yes. Where would the flooring have come from? Is that black pine or rimu? It's thick, I know that. I think some of that flooring may have come from around Berlin's area, the Heafy area. Bill Heafy got a lot of that timber out and had it cut from up around the Heafy mine at Berlin's. I know Harding Thompson's had something to do with cutting it because it was all done voluntary, mm -hmm. cutting the, the timber to, to make, well, the floor essentially, that I know of, and there were still some sticks in the rafters or up in the roof when uh, the roof was changed some years back. Quite interesting. Yeah. Now, you spoke about the AMP show. Mm -hmm. I know our trail doesn't go there, but how many years have you been on the AMP show board? <laughs> this one will be 71, Jeff. 71st year. Yes. And you've been everything on the AMP show. Yes, I've been fortunate enough to be involved in it. I became a member and I was on the committee, actually. I was put on the horse committee when I was 10 years old. So I've been very fortunate to be uh, involved in that that long. been president a couple of times and vice president and life member and now. Very privileged to be so. It's certainly been... Uh, I've seen some changes over the years, a lot of changes. White baiting, that was always a good pastime. And uh, well, I mentioned the Fergusons with their uh, vegetables growing, but they were very, very keen white baiters. They had some good catches, I believe. 
Jeff might be able to tell you something about that. But, uh... I spoke to Keith Alexander the other day and asked him if he'd be interested in coming along and saying a few things because he had been one of the first surfies to set up the surfing in Taronga Bay. And when I said about Martins Creek, he said he had seen the most white bait he had ever seen in his life. He said the Fergusons had caught 13 tins of white bait on one tide. Um, I've never seen that much, only in South Westland. No, I've never seen that much. I've never caught that much. But I remember my father telling me him and Justin Woodhead were fishing the little Totra River and they got 42 tins on one tide out of the one shoal. 42 tins of white bait. That's a heck of a lot of white bait. Because back in those days too, we had the white bait factory going that was along the Esplanade there, where part of the uh, trail down to the wharf goes. They used to be able to run a boat up the inside there, in there, and offload the, the fish and that at the white bait factory, which was along the Esplanade. I can remember the white bait factory being there. I've never had tin white bait though. I, I can't imagine it'd be very bloody nice. <laughs> I can't imagine it either, Chief. And just along from there was, I presumed you worked there too, was the bacon factory and the dairy factory. I worked at the bacon factory, yes, I did. Um, that was um, a cooperative, Pula Valley Bacon Factory. Yes, we produced a lot of ham, good ham, good bacon, good small goods. Worked there for a few years. We had the uh, butter factory there as well. We had the ice cream factory all basically in the same building. It's where farmlands are today. The pigs would come in and you'd cut them up and uh, you'd fill the freezers up with legs of, you know, ready for Christmas and then get them out and make hams out of them. Hams and bacon took a little bit longer to make than what they what it does today. They'd be in and it'd take two or three weeks to process them, to cure them properly, get them out, dry them out properly, smoke them, roll them, and we sent that bacon and hams all around the country, actually. And we only got to move up two blocks to a place where you would have had a lot to do with it, was the flax mill. The flax mill you could hear all over town. You could hear it grinding away. It was like I could remember the steam cranes down my end of town. But up there, tell us about your life in the flax mill. Well, I started off when I left school, actually, cutting flax, or before I left school. Dad was contract cutting flax. He was cutting flax up there behind uh, Bulls and on the big lake up there. And we actually put tram lines through that, through across that lake. And before I went away to boarding school, I was working up there. I was only 12, giving them a hand cut the flax. It was to get my pocket money for when I went to boarding school. You only got two bob a week. But two bob wasn't too bad when you were away from home. So we had quite a bit to do with the flax industry. We cut flax down the Okauri, right through that area, right around and out the back of Sergeant's Hill, all those areas down there, even down as far as um, Brighton, down on the coast road. And then I did do a stint in the flax mill itself, worked there for a while. As you say, Jeff, the grinding away, that was the blades of flax going through. You put two through at a time, there was one back of the blade over that side and one back of the blade over there and it would go through. And that's the noise you'd hear, the all day it'd go. Went through, down onto the chain, into the wash. Come off the wash, you'd take it out off the chain there, it'd be all hanked up and go over the 
the rails, on the skids, and from there it was taken down to where the Pony Club grounds are there now at the North Beach, all dried out there in the paddocks down there. Be collected when it was dried up, but it come back and be bailed up at the flax mill and it was sent away to Foxton. In those days, New Zealand had quite a big flax industry and it was used for uh, rope and also matting and wool bales. But the wool people didn't like it very much because of the little f- bits of stuff that would come out and get in the wool and contaminate the wool. So when the markets got uh, a bit tough on that, that's when most of our flax industry died, actually, because it was quite big right throughout New Zealand. A lot of practical jokes played. <laughs> the chap that had to feed the two bits of flax in, he'd have a leather apron, and you can imagine, they'd tie the tail of the that he'd have tied behind his back to the flax, the next thing he'd be starting to go for this thing that could virtually grind, well, if you've got a hand in there, it'd grind it off, wouldn't it? Well, you wouldn't, things. you wouldn't want to put your hand in, Jeff. No. There'd be nothing left of it. <laughs> nothing left. And the juice used to run straight out into the Buller River. Like, everything went into the river, didn't it? It did, it did. There was a flume went from the flax mill straight out to the river. And all the vegetation off the flax used to go out there what we called the slips, and they were the small pieces, that uh, the sucker pieces that were in the middle of the, the flax. They would go out, they'd be picked up in the race, and that would go outside, and it'd be taken away from there. So there was no fibre went down. It was only the it was only the outside of the uh, flax that went down. So the, we've lost a lot of industries. We have lost a lot. When of you industry. talk about the noise, I can remember as a kid, my dad drove the steam cranes on the wharf, loading the ships coal boats and till about half past nine at night you could hear the steam cranes you could hear the water siders bashing the sides of the queue wagons to get all the coal out and that it was a hive of activity that wharf it certainly was and that was another thing going back to the uh, the camp at uh, the carters beach and you're talking about the industries that we have was when they had the water siders strike in the 50s we had the army billeted out there at Carter's, they were stopping at the motor camp because they came here to run the wharf and they also ran the, the mines as well up there to get the coal out. And I remember we had a uh, an old black and white goat called Nancy at the camp. We used her to clean up a lot of the blackberries and stuff that was around there in those days because it was still in its development. It's not flat and nice like it is today. And uh, a couple of them there were dead scared of her. Because she'd come up and she'd stand up on hind legs and that sort of stuff. And the only way they could get past her, they'd have to give her a cigarette or some tobacco. And while she was munching the tobacco, they were able to get out. <laughs> Good thing it wasn't a belly goat. They tend to relieve themselves on you, don't they? Well, they do. They can do. Yes, they can do. 